Welcome to the Political R&D Podcast. I'm Robbie Krieger-Smith. And I'm Deirdre Mitchell-McLean. We bring political analysis and commentary on events in Alberta and Canadian politics. We discuss policy and look for expert insights into topics relevant to government, policymakers, and issues that face voters. Hi, Deirdre. Hi, Robbie. <laughs> so we have we have a week's worth of uh, the legislature sitting that we get to go through, and I am stupid excited to start with the throne speeches. Nerd so first, alert! Yeah, I know, <laughs> <laughs> and it gets worse because <laughs> I'm stupid excited to talk about the last one, but. The throne speech, Kenny's throne speech, what did what did you think? Did you watch it live? I didn't watch it live. I was working, but I did watch it later in the day. Okay. I don't think there was any really large surprises. The thing that stood out for me more than anything was the brevity of the speech. It was pretty succinct and to the point. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't quite meander the way that sometimes throne speeches can and do Mm -hmm. and I think that that's a bit of a sign of kind of the energy or the pace at which Kenny intends to govern he intends to accomplish a lot in a really short period of time and even just looking at having a summer sitting and the prep work that the UCP has done into having bills lined up and ready to go I think Mm -hmm. that that kind of reflects in the throne speech yeah and did you like i went back to i i wanted to look at a bit of a comparison so i did pull up notley's speech as well and hers actually was a lot shorter Mm. i found it was also um i mean i think i i didn't count how many uh but i did write them down so kenny talked about looks to be about 12, 12 or 13 things that he was looking to do over this year. Yeah. And so that was, you know, that's a, a fair number. And in Notley's, she just talked about, looks like three. Yeah. Thinking back on when the Notley government was first elected and even kind of their first year and a bit in government, One of the things that I know within the Alberta party and even just me as a political observer, because I wasn't that engaged until about 2016 in politics, but there wasn't a lot of legislative accomplishment in the first year of Mm. the NDP government. And I think a part of that is because the Alberta NDP hadn't really had a lot of infrastructure been a very large caucus before and obviously they haven't governed before either right and so a lot of their first year was spent on establishing structure and routines bringing their 
newly elected MLAs and cabinet ministers up to speed and setting up the infrastructure of governance. And so there wasn't a lot legislatively that was accomplished in kind of the first six to eight months of the government when Notley was first elected. Okay. And I did notice, like I noticed some similarities between them. Um, both Notley and Kenny did give a nod to Indigenous peoples, which considering Kenny has trashed the... Uh, Territorial recognition. Right. Yeah. Uh, as a personal preference. it I was kind of surprised to see that when I looked for it. Uh, but one of the things that I noticed as well is when... So Notley referred to... Uh, when she gave her nod, and it was, of course, right at the beginning, she referred to them as stewards of the land that they always had been and they will continue to be, you know, in the future. Uh, Kenny referred to the treaties that we are duty-bound to uphold. So, mm-hmm. you know, a little bit, little bit different with the language there. But... I will also say that reading, and this this very well could come from, of course, my personal bias, but reading through Kenny's throne speech, I did not get a feeling of uh, excitement out of it. Mm -hmm. And yet with Notley's, I could definitely feel that excitement. Uh, There seemed to be more, when she talked about renewal and when Kenny talked about renewal, and it could be the language around the way that they did that as well. I think there's an element, too, of the NDP. When they won government, A, it was unanticipated or unexpected. Mm. And so there was obviously a celebratory or jovial kind of halo around them as a government. Mm-hmm. And they perceived correctly or incorrectly that that was a tectonic shift in Alberta and the kind of fabric or makeup of the province, if you will. Whereas I think Kenny's ascension was kind of treated as um, a return to divine right. Yes. (laughs) And a large part of the campaign and the strategy that led them to their government was based on pessimism and downplaying the things that the Notley government had done in the position that Alberta was in. So for them to come in and be celebratory and say we're in a good spot, they kind (laughs) of had to continue that, oh, things are so bad. Woe is me. We're in a desperate situation. Um, I think you'll see the next throne speech, especially if economic growth is trending positive and if jobs numbers are looking good then you'll start to see a little bit more hopeful and positive communication i look forward to that possibility okay but let's go to the really exciting part so (laughs) i found a website that because i wanted to compare jason kenny's speech and rachel notley's speech with a speech from a PC government as well. And at first I went to Ralph Klein because I thought, you know, let's see what the similarities are. But as I was reading Ralph Klein's throne speech, 
it referred so much to bills that were already in place and things that they were proud that their government was doing. And I realized that that can't be compared. So there's a website that has thrown speeches <laughs> for Alberta. I'm so excited. Uh, from 1960, was it 1962? 1960. Uh, a <laughs> they have, this website has thrown speeches from uh, all the all of the provinces, some back from 1955. But anyway, so I got to read Lougheed's throne speech, and it was amazing. It it was talk about, and I guess realize at the time that this actually was that tectonic shift, right? This was a uh, as as he put it, chart a new course and. I thought that was just fantastic. I did have a little bit of a giggle over the Alberta in the 70s. <laughs> I mean, but that was, you know, forward thinking at the time. But maybe I, it's hard to say why I was so excited. It could be because that's historical now. And we can see all of these things that Lougheed wanted to do that he actually did. These are now in place. These are things we take for granted. And... Uh, one of the things, so Peter Lougheed was the one who brought the Hansard into Alberta. And Peter Lougheed opened legislature business to TV and radio. And he did the twice a year uh, sessions because apparently I didn't realize that they only sat in the spring back in the 30s, but he brought the legislature to sit twice a year. He uh, updated MLA responsibilities and statuses to give all members an opportunity to debate, which, again, awesome, because what were those people doing if they weren't given an opportunity to debate or speak in the ledge? Um, also, access to resources. Lougheed made sure that all MLAs had access to uh, like research and, and being able to be on committees. And apparently prior to Lougheed, it was uh, restricted, or sorry, that, that access was restricted to members of the executive. So, <laughs> If but only you... we could include a little video of you dancing right now. <laughs> it's really interesting to look at that history, and I wonder a little bit if, because the Progressive Conservative Party replaced the Social Credit, which had been in power for 36 years, okay. and they had some rather sizable majorities. There was a few Social Credit governments as well that had mega majority governments where there wasn't a lot of opposition. And I wonder if that wasn't some of Peter Lougheed's attempt to try and set it up so that even if you had really large opposition or rather large government caucuses that there was still some element of not necessarily opposition but just representation of right. the constituents that weren't in the executive council mm -hmm. and i mean he did like the other thing that he created the department of advanced education as well um which I thought was, again, like it just, I read through three, well, actually technically four throne speeches. 
Um, oh, actually five, because I read through the 1992 and Klein didn't give that one. So, okay. Anyway, um, so I read through a number of throne speeches. And again, you know, Lawheed's was just so forward thinking. I found this to be, I, I found I found it to be just amazing to read through. And unfortunately, as you mentioned, there were a lot of things in Lawheed's throne speech that are unfortunately particularly relevant again today. Yeah, so there was five things, and I just read the throne speech from Lawheed today as I was kind of doing the prep work, but there was five areas that he really wanted to focus on, and it was protection of human rights, senior citizens, agriculture, handicapped children, and mental health. Yeah. And I think about some of the issues that were present in this election and the last election, and all of those are there. Um, the only thing I would maybe kind of say has changed or evolved is agriculture isn't as big a focus it's more oil and gas now but um, mm. those are definitely all issues that are ballot box concerns and yeah. uh, have definitely been social social issues that have formed formed part of the political narrative over the last couple of years mm-hmm. and there was something else as well that again it didn't really seem like I was reading this from the the 70s but uh, one of his sorry he started six committees as well and this was in uh, this was I guess with some deference to his open government plan uh, the first one was desirability or sorry the first committee was to look at the desirability uh, of limitations, if any, on foreign investment, mm -hmm. uh, alternatives to the Communal Property Act, the necessity for any form of censorship in Alberta. I, I'm I'm going to do some more research on that one. Yeah. Uh, improvements in the Election Act, uh, legislative changes, if any, in laws governing professions and occupations. Again, like this is just immense. Uh, and improvements to crop insurance programs. Yeah, so, it's very interesting. I think we need to do a podcast where we dig into that and we find somebody, either um, an Alberta provincial politics historian or... Oh, I know um, one, buff. Mr. Troy Wason. <laughs> <laughs> and it would be good to look into that and, and kind of find out where his head was at and what was going on. Yeah, actually, and and I think that Troy is Troy is probably one of the best people that you can get because he was so i mean he's a, he's he's a he's a historian uh by education and by interest but he also spent so much time with the pc party that it was it was easy for him to uh you know to pay attention to that history and to apply it you know, in the present. So, yeah, yeah Troy, this is, you're, you're on notice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I have somebody else that might be good. Um, I'm actually friends with one of Lahid's first cabinet ministers. Oh. Yeah, and uh, so I can reach out to him and see if he would be interested or able or willing to do an interview. Um, I've had lunch with him a couple times, and he's very fascinating to talk to. <laughs> oh. 
a rambler though. <laughs> uh, who isn't when we get going? Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know if the rest of the podcast can really keep up to this, but uh, <laughs> but there were other things that happened last week as well. Uh, Bill one was introduced and uh, <laughs> I've made up I've made up my own names for each of these bills just so you know. <laughs> the carbon tax switch and bait. The, uh, the the our province isn't burning. That's fake news act. Oh, okay. Well, that's <laughs> that seems apt. <laughs> so the carbon tax repeal act was uh, brought out on Wednesday, the twenty second, and I mean we all knew that was coming. That was no surprise. Yep. Yeah. Job killing carbon tax. Yep. And. Uh, he did mention, however, I I think this is the first time that he has really made the connection when he's speaking that he understands the federal tax will be uh, implemented in its place. Yeah, and you can tell that there's been a bit of a change in tone. And we talked about this, I think, two podcasts ago, where he's kind of hedging his position a little bit. And, mm -hmm. you know, he said, well, if we have to have a carbon tax, the Ottawa one, is pre Ottawa one is preferable to the NDP version because more of the money comes back to Alberta and to Albertans. Mm. The other thing is, is that Kenny has continued to be a proponent of a carbon tax on large emitters. So it's not that the carbon tax is going, we're just getting two different versions of it. Oh. And uh, so under the climate leadership plan that was instituted by the NDP, they brought in a program called CCIR, the Carbon Competitiveness, Competitiveness Incentive Regulation. And... Uh, <laughs> So that's what replaced Dead Stelmax version of the carbon tax on large emitters. And so now Kenny is going to replace the CCIR with his own TIER, which stands for Technology Innovation and Emissions Reduction Program. So the TIER program. Yes. And basically what's going to happen with that is the large emitters in the province are going to be charged a carbon tax that's going to go into a fund that's going to help with research and development around carbon reducing technologies and 20 million dollars from that is also going to go into their energy war room so <laughs> <laughs> so that's what's going to be paying for um our troll farm that uh, is operated by the Alberta government. Yay! Well, you know, actually, that is probably one of the fairest ways to do it because the war room is essentially a marketing shtick for oil and gas anyway. Yep. Yeah, totally so, is. Okay. Yeah. And then other stuff that is going to be coming no pun intended, down the pipeline <laughs> as part of his climate change uh, plan is he's also going to stop the statutory shutdown of coal that was implemented, or I should say the accelerated statutory shutdown of coal-fired plants that was implemented by the NDP, um, even though it was his government that <laughs> implemented it. in 2012 <laughs> that they would all have to shut down. Um, so the big difference, uh, 18 of Alberta's, or most of Alberta's 18 coal-fired plants would have had to shut down 
under the Harper regulations that were passed. Mm -hmm. The difference is that um, modern technology plants were grandfathered in and were allowed to operate until the end of their life cycle. If I recall correctly off the top of my head, that only affected five or six coal plants in Alberta, though. Um, but Kenny's been on the record actually saying that even with the change in the early phase out, because these companies have already done the work that's required to convert to natural gas and have started that process, there's going to be no practical change. So mm. this is uh, kind of, yeah. This is, just, this is just Kenny patting his own back. <laughs> the, the emperor's robe? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, there'll be no practical difference for coal producing towns in those plants, but it's good headlines until, uh, He's no longer in Edmonton and goes back to Ottawa. Right, right. Okay. And then we had Monday, we had uh, Bill 2, the Open for Business Act, or as I call it, the Strip Labor Standards Act. (laughs) (laughs) So this is where I get myself in a lot of trouble (laughs) because I'm actually generally supportive of everything in this act. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I... I've gotten my hands and my PP slapped quite a few <laughs> times by my friends in the Alberta party and online. Um, for me, so I worked for McDonald's for 22 plus years and I started there when I was 14 years old. And when I first started, there was a tiered minimum wage. Uh, so uh, liquor servers and students under the age of 18 made 425 an hour and those that uh, were older um, adult employees that weren't working in liquor service were making, I believe it was 475 at the time. So there was a 50 cent differential between the two. And I never really had a problem with it. Um, maybe it was because I was 14 and I just wasn't that tuned into politics or whatever. But I was honestly just grateful to have an opportunity to have a job. Mm-hmm. Um that was phased out by the Progressive Conservative Party, I want to say probably March of 1998 or thereabouts. And uh, at the time, the justification was that it was discriminatory to be paying students less money than adults. Um, and that's certainly the argument that labor advocates and the NDP are using today. Um, I've got mixed emotions on it. I, I do agree that there is value in having equal pay for equal work and that you wouldn't discriminate based on age other ways and it could potentially be viewed as a slippery slope where you start paying seniors less than you start paying uh younger employees (laughs) put it that way and uh I mean, for a long time in Alberta, it was also okay to pay people who had disabilities less than minimum wage. And so I'm a little bit conflicted because having, you know, worked in the service industry and working in, in and with an employer that relies heavily on student labor... I do know that the productivity and the output of students is not as high as people who are doing it full time. And the majority of the students that work, in my experience, in my conversations with 
the employees that I managed was that they are really there just for experience and to establish some some extra spending money. It's not really about providing for themselves. Now, where this becomes a little bit sticky is that, yeah, you do have 15 and 16 year olds that are either kicked out or living on their own for whatever reason, and they are saving up for post-secondary education and whatnot. The thing that I struggle with is, again, having been in the restaurant industry for 22 years, I know the very thin margins that the restaurants operate on. And the 50% increase in minimum wage over such a short period of time was really hard for a lot of restaurants to adapt to. And it's not the big corporations that are struggling. It's actually the moms and pop shops. And just, you know, in the trading area that I worked in, when these minimum wage increases were happening, we saw a lot of our competition have to shut their doors because they couldn't stay open and particularly in food service the margins are very very thin and people aren't willing to pay as much as they say that they are they aren't willing to pay an extra 50 cents or a dollar to make sure that everybody's getting a quote-unquote living wage and so if the ultimate intention of having a significantly higher minimum wage is to reduce poverty are there better ways to do it? Should minimum wage be the only tool that's used? And I'm of the opinion that there are other things that could be done, like say a reverse income tax, where if you make under $30,000, you get some sort of a top up from the government, that type of thing. And what that does is then it enables people who are living in poverty and are using those kind of low cost or low value services, whether it be a Walmart or a fast food restaurant or whatever to not have the inflationary pressures that are put on prices because they're ultimately the people who are paying for it um, mm-hmm. and still make sure that people have dignity and can support their families if they are working full time. Um, right. So I've got a bit of mixed feelings about it. Um, overall, I'm okay with it. But again, you know, that's just based on me having worked that and my own experience with having a tiered minimum wage. And I didn't feel at any time that it was because I was less valued. Right. Well, and I, like I worked in, I worked in retail. I did, I did technically manage the store. So I was in charge of the schedule. And back when I was, you know, 18 doing this I like I always ensured that my regular working day was a Monday specifically because of holiday pay and you know it uh, I, I think I think people that can control that try to right mm-hmm. I mean obviously that was better for me if if it was a regular uh, pay for me but Two with the straight time overtime, and again, I've, you know, I've done that. I've done overtime with no pay, and just because it, uh, you know, because I was proud of the job that I did, and actually that was again retail, but I worked at an embroidery shop, and uh, Christmas is a nightmare <laughs> for embroidery. Like, just people want everything. Yeah, and. The thing was that you had a lot of items that were 
they were single items, right? So we had mm-hmm. a warehouse location that did a lot of uh, commercial items. They would offer to take over stuff in the during Christmas, but I knew it was like one person's initials on this towel and, you know, something on a blanket. And it's not something that can be done with a mass of, you know, 20 different machines all doing the same thing. So I would stay, I would stay till, you know, two, three o'clock in the morning. Um, and I guaranteed people after a certain time, it will be done in the morning. That's what it took to make sure that got done. I didn't get paid for it. <laughs> My boss yeah. was like, you don't have to do that. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. So. Yeah. And uh, so as a manager, I've experienced that as an employee, I never did. And for me, it's interesting because I hear and see people and I I genuinely believe that there are employers that take advantage of it. But it's mm-hmm. just interesting to me because people always say, oh, McDonald's is a terrible place to work or, you know, they just take advantage of cheap labor. But in my entire time working as a student, I was paid every minute of overtime. There was never any monkey business and every organization that I've worked for with my time with McDonald's and I've worked for six or seven owner operators, that's been kind of very core to the values is that you pay people fairly, you pay them for their contributions, you make sure that every hour is recorded, that type of stuff. Certainly as a salaried manager, that hasn't been the experience. Mm. Um, But there's other (laughs) perks and stuff that come along with it, right? Um, Right. So for me, maybe I've just benefited from working with a really good organization who values people and not just that in makes terms a difference. of it it does make a difference but you know I, I i guess maybe i take for granted that not every organization is that way so that's true yeah. yeah yeah i guess technically even though you've worked for like you said six or seven different owner operators your experience is with one one company yep yeah it is which and is very weird nowadays you know yeah, I'm I'm a total <laughs> unicorn in my generation. Like yeah. I even my husband for example, like we've been together uh 8 years now and he's had five jobs in the 8 years. Like that's yeah. what I've had my entire life. Right. So, <laughs> um and I'm quite a bit older than he well, 8 years older. I don't want to <laughs> start any rumors <laughs> <Yeah>. or <laughs> So. Uh-huh. Yeah, but it's, I mean, even my younger brothers, they, they've they jumped jobs quite a bit. And most of my friends don't really kind of have a, a large amount of time with any position. 24 jobs? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. No, I'm five I'm or six searching. total. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you mean grow up? Exactly. Yeah. So, no, I know it's, uh, but I mean, I, you know, I can, I can find... Um, I, I can find some benefits to the Open for Business Act. I understand why some of them are in place. Uh, one of the things that that came up with uh, Notley and when she was originally going through this, there were a couple of uh, locations that their their regular, uh, I guess the regular days they were closed were Sunday Monday, mm-hmm. and so for them, you know, I I got that. But I also know for a fact that there were 
businesses, restaurants especially, who would close on Sunday, Monday because those were the slowest days and also yep. because it saved them money. Yep. Right. Yeah. So that was so I, I kind of, you know, that was a tough one when she when when those debates were going on, because you can see it from both sides. Right. Like, again, totally. people taking advantage of it or people doing it because it made business sense to do it that way. Yeah, well, and that that one, acknowledging that the rest of the provinces and territories operate that way, it just seems a little odd to me. If I'm a Monday to Friday employee and a statutory holiday falls on a Saturday or Sunday, I just don't understand why you would get paid extra for that. That doesn't make right. any sense to me. Like, you still get the day off, right? Um, and Again, so this, could be, this could be a career-specific because... Because you were used to having that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but any employer I've worked for, um, including McDonald's, but accepting McDonald's as well, um, I understand it's normal for government and bank employees to do that. But again, just the logic of it, like the, the intention behind statutory pay and behind overtime pay is to really penalize employers for having their employees work on holidays. Right. If that's a day the employee doesn't work, why is the employer being penalized? That's true. And it's so true. to and me, that just doesn't make sense. But it is also like, I remember one year when my kids were really small and I worked at a hotel and Christmas Day, of course, obviously, it's a 24-hour, uh, seven-day-a-week operation. And yep. so I was like, we can just have Christmas, like, on Boxing Day because my kids won't know the difference. And I can work that and make the extra overtime. Mm -hmm. So the, I don't know, like, for me, overtime, okay, except for that time that I did it because I was just awesome, um, overtime is an added incentive that an employer can offer right who wants to work christmas no one no one with family with a family wants to work christmas yeah however for time and a half you know i'll see what i can do so i i don't know and and the thing is that there it's not like everyone is going to take advantage of it again though i i don't i don't know in for, for people that have been complaining about how awful the economy is and there's no jobs to like for it to be an employer's market where an employer could very likely take advantage of individuals who, mm -hmm. yes, they would love another job. And if they could have gotten one, they would have been gone by now. Uh, I that's that's something that that bothers me. If the economy is really as bad as the UCP keeps saying it is then legislation like this, to me, puts workers in a more vulnerable position. Yes, it <laughs> does. And I, uh, th there's two pieces. So obviously, there are employers where people are working a lot of overtime. Um, and I heard from a lot of people online that there were employers that we're forcing employees to work overtime in the past mm -hmm. and then giving them time off instead of time and a half. And the employee didn't get a choice. Right. 
And so I, I think that's kind of for me where the problem lies is that there should be a choice. It should be up to the employee. So again, I'm going to pick on or use my husband as an example. Um, he started a new job uh, going on three years ago now, three and a half, four years ago now. And when he started that job, he only had two weeks of vacation. I had five. Right. So what he would do at the time is he would work overtime and bank extra time that he was able to take off his vacation time at straight pay. So mm -hmm. that enabled him to have extra vacation time that he normally wouldn't have been entitled to. So for him, that's what he wanted. He didn't want the time and a half pay. And that wasn't even an option anyways. It was either you bank overtime as time off or you just don't work overtime at all. Because ironically, it's actually a government contractor and their contracts are fixed and firm. So yeah. there's no allowance for overages or overtime that type of stuff the contract is defined this is the cost we're paying for this amount of service etc right so right. when the ndp changed the regulations banked overtime just stopped and there was no overtime period so it was 40 flat hours a week and no additional time so he's only been able to take two weeks of vacation so in that situation for him it was actually a loss. It didn't help them out any, right? So, right. but if an employer is saying, you know, you need to work 70 hours this week and you're going to take the next week off and just get paid regular time for both weeks, to me, that's problematic and abusive. And there needs to be a way to, a mechanism to prevent that from happening. Right. And so even though the bills have been introduced, there hasn't, I haven't watched any of the uh, debate on them, whether or not they are being debated currently. But uh, but something to keep an eye on for sure. Yeah. The one and thing yeah. I will add about uh, the Open for Business Act that I did disagree with, even though I am generally supportive of a tiered minimum wage, mm -hmm. I'm not supportive of rolling it back. And I think that once you give something to somebody, you should never take it back. And... So one of the things and I know the Alberta Party stance was this was, yes, we're supportive of a tiered wage, but you don't take money away from people who are already making it. And part of the reason I think this is problematic is businesses have adjusted and adapted their pricing structures. Right. They're not going to be rolling prices back because minimum wage is 13 bucks an hour. <laughs> no, they won't. <laughs> so to me, that's problematic. And uh, just like I, prices are not going to change when the carbon tax comes. Yep. Speaking of which, actually, uh, has, did you notice, did your gas prices fluctuate this month? <laughs> so, so here's the problem. <laughs> my family does quite well, and I just pay my bills. I don't really <laughs> look at them. No, no, I don't mean the ones that, like, I mean, your like, like, the gas you put in your car. Have you oh. noticed? Oh, <laughs> Have you noticed that it's fluctuated? Like you pass gas stations, I always I always notice the price. Yeah, it's been pretty volatile lately. Um, it's really? hard to tell. Ours has hasn't changed. Oh yeah, no, ours has been up and down quite a bit. Um, I think we were almost a dollar twenty a liter at one point here in Edmonton. Um, yeah, We've so been it dollar nineteen since the beginning of May. Oh yeah, there was no, no fluctuation on May long. Yeah, no, it's been up and down. I think the lowest I've paid is a dollar seven, and the highest is a dollar nineteen. Yeah, no, it's been it's been straight a dollar nineteen, and I was actually, I was kind of weirded out about that, hmm. because why, 
why did it not fluctuate over May long? Interesting. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, here or there. Yeah. Bill number three. Bill number three was introduced yesterday. The job creation tax cut, or as I like to call it, the but we don't have money for public services act. <laughs> <laughs> this is very good. I don't see you having a future writing government bills, though. <laughs> I thought that was I thought that was an excellent one. Yeah. So, um, this one I'm conflicted on because the primary job creators in our province are small businesses. And a small business in Alberta currently is defined as any company that makes $500,000 or less profit. And that current tax rate is 2%. Right. The tax rates that are being reduced by Bill 3 are the taxes that are charged on businesses that make over $500,000 in profit annually. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's its profit. Yeah. 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 And so for me, I think that what would have made more sense is to have an increase in the threshold of what's considered to be a small business, because that would probably be more meaningful for the job creators in the province. Like if you were to take the people who are profiting 500 to a million dollars and put them at the 2% tax rate, you wouldn't be giving a big incentive to mega corporations who are already making a lot of cash and sitting on it. Mm-hmm. You would be giving a big incentive to kind of the the homegrown mid-sized corporations that are the primary drivers of jobs. Um, mm-hmm. So depending upon the economists that you talk to, I noticed the Edmonton Journal had an article the other day saying that this isn't really going to have an impact on job creation in the province. It'll be negligible. Was that the Montreal economist? Uh, I'll have to pull it up here. I read one as well in The yeah. Economist. Well, they talked to a couple. Yeah. Um, Montreal and, and BC. Yeah, and so this promise, though, was vetted by two economists at the University of Calgary's Public School of Policy. And their assertion is that it'll create approximately 55,000 jobs over the course of the term and that it will be revenue neutral at the end of the day because there will be incremental economic growth. So the argument is that trickle-down economics doesn't work and you're just giving corporations a tax break that they're just going to pass off to shareholders and put into their bank accounts. And depending upon, I guess, the ideological school of thought, um, some are saying (laughs) that it will create jobs and others are saying it won't create jobs. The Alberta economy was at its kind of rock bottom anyways, and no matter what the tax policy was, the jobs were going to increase organically. So um, one thing that you can be certain of is if the job market looks better in three or four years, the UCP will be taking credit for it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And they will point to this tax cut as the reason for it. So, well, and I did the math before, even if, uh, even if they do manage to create 55,000 jobs, the 
isn't this isn't the uh, the standard idea is that this tax break will lose us a billion dollars in revenue. Yeah, and so the finance minister has also said that by the end of the term, they will still be a little bit behind. They won't have come out ahead yet. So they are saying that it is going to drop the amount of income that they're going to take in. Now, this is a little bit of a weird mind meld because the NDP increased the tax rate from 8 to 12% and their corporate tax revenues decreased as well. So right. even though they were charging a higher rate, they were taking in less actual dollars. Yeah, but that's because we were in a recession. Yep. Yeah. Well, technically, we haven't been in a recession, though, since 20. Uh, about 2016 yeah so um and when we came out of the recession our corporate tax revenues didn't increase either um so the answer is probably a little bit of both to be honest that um you know a little a little bit of it will be that we're just on a trajectory where we're coming out of the really bad situation that was when the 2015 election happened mm -hmm. and uh, some of that job recovery and growth is happening organically and some of it may be spurred on by this tax cut right well i don't uh i did the math one day i just tried to do it again it didn't work i got something called one e9 um on my calculator <laughs> there so but I, I believe that these 55,000 jobs, in order to, in order to provide the the amount of revenue that would replace that, these jobs have to be sitting at 125,000, something like that, like very well-paying jobs. Considering that the average income, or sorry, the average median wage in Alberta, according to 2017 stats, I believe was the last one, was only $62,000 a year. Oh. So. Yeah, well, I, I say only when country. we're talking about creating 55,000 jobs at double that. Yeah. Right? Like, this is, these, that's that's my issue with the 55,000. My other issue is that for two years, Jason Kenney has been campaigning about the fact that there are 183,000 unemployed uh, oil field workers and 55,000 jobs is a drop in the freaking bucket, if that's really your goal to mm -hmm. fix that well i i think that the rhetoric there does show that kenny acknowledges or realizes that some of those jobs just aren't coming back you and think, is he really do you think he acknowledges that well <laughs> I, I don't i've think never he, noticed that i don't think he will explicitly acknowledge it but i think implicitly he is Okay. And the other thing that I think he's doing is he's potentially sandbagging a little bit the numbers of his expectations. Because if you come in and say, we're going to bring back 180,000 jobs and you bring back 55,000, you look like a moron, right? But if you say, oh, conservatively, or, you know, we think that we can bring back 55,000, but the result winds up being 100,000, you look like a freaking hero, right? Right. Um, okay. Yeah. So let's lowball it. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> but so it, you lowball it a bit. You get a pipeline. You manage to defeat the 
the tanker ban and the no more pipelines bill, which it's increasingly looking like may not actually be passed into law before the end of the sessions and the federal election, mm-hmm. then, you know, things are lining up pretty good for you. And then on top of that, Andrew Shear's riding high in the polls right now. This is true. This yeah. is true. And this is, this is, I, this could be a good segue, but then we can't talk about Schweitzer. Yeah, well, we'll talk. About <laughs> what do you Schweitzer. want to do? <laughs> Let's talk about Schweitzer. Okay, because Doug Schweitzer is such an interesting character in the grand <laughs> scheme of things going on in Alberta politics right now. It so interests me, actually, because uh, do you remember when we were having that conversation about look who the ministers are? And we pegged the biggest troll of Jason Kenney's appointments as being Jason Nixon and Adriana LaGrange. Why did we not talk about how big of a troll it was? Did we forget that the UCP was under investigation? Uh, well, I mean, they obviously the whoever they chose was going to be part of the UCP. Yeah, I know totally for sure. And so. I'm just trying to think who else they believe- could have been? Well, I believe Shandro's a lawyer, isn't he? Yes, he is. Yeah, he is. So he might have made sense. Um, uh, Casey Madu is also a lawyer. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so <laughs> like they, there were options. Yeah, there were options. It didn't, for sure. it didn't have to be the guy who made a public complaint about, you know, possible voting irregularities during the leadership race. Yeah, maybe it was a strategic consideration uh, to put somebody who has a potential conflict of interest there, because if anybody's got a motivation to not throw the boss under the bus, it's definitely (laughs) Schweitzer, right? So um, throw him under the bus again. Uh, But yeah, I, I mean, there definitely were some options. To me, Schweitzer was certainly the most high profile lawyer and was the one who from uh just high a profile well like, within the ucp work? yeah yeah, yeah okay. because of his work because of his leadership um campaign and the profile he's maintained and unseating greg clark too um mm. arguably was one of the most effective opposition mlas including the ucp caucus so <laughs> you betcha yeah so <laughs> I'm sure that there was some strategic consideration there. Uh, I think in a normal political climate, like say 10 years ago, you would probably see a special prosecutor appointed and the solicitor general would be recusing themselves from it. Um, But this isn't a normal political climate. And is it is it interesting to see um and actually i oh, i haven't seen a lot of commentary around this from ucp supporters but i again i love the psychology behind it i i want to know how in one breath they can say trudeau and Jody Wilson-Raybould, and in the next, say, there's nothing wrong with Schweitzer overseeing the department that may or may not 
uh, be laying charges against the party of the premier and the minister of justice. Yeah, well, to be clear, the minister of justice isn't going to be facing any sort of charges. He wasn't. That's true. He's not a suspect. Yeah, he's not a suspect. He was not a participant in the alleged uh, kamikaze he's a campaign. Complainant. Yeah, he's a complainant. He's the so, victim. <clears throat> potentially, yeah. Um, <laughs> oh no, I've been victimized. I'm the justice minister All making right. two hundred some grand a year. Um, yeah. It, the difference between this and the Jody Wilson-Raybould thing is that Schweitzer was complaining during the leadership when he was an opponent of Kenny. And he's no longer complaining. He's now saying that he has confidence in the leadership and that he's supportive of the leader. I know Hamish Marshall says the same thing. Yeah, funny how that changes once <laughs> they get near power, hey? Yes. Yeah, so so those are the differences, I guess, is that when you're the complainant for any sort of potential criminal complaint, if you decide not to proceed with charges or a complaint, that's generally kind of the end of it, unless it's something that's particularly heinous. Now, this is complicated a little bit by the fact that we do have an elections commissioner who is looking into it, who has has already passed it off, already passed it off to the RCMP. And so I think that that's what's going to potentially give this thing legs. What will be interesting to watch is if there is actual political interference and if there is some sort of direction given to just keep it hush hush. Oh, please. They're never going to be able to prove this. I mean, they they know they have evidence. And that's the other thing, too, is that whether whether Schweitzer was the one who actually made a complaint to begin with, like his role in this and his role in the leadership race, his role in the party and now his role in caucus um, and in the government itself, that's all just twisted fun. But the. You know, whether he made a complaint or not really no longer applies because it wasn't, I mean, sure, it could have been Schweitzer himself, but it wasn't just Schweitzer. It was Brian Jean, and it also wasn't just them. Whoever, uh, whomever was signed up to vote and did not vote but is on record as having voted, uh, they are actually the ones who were victimized. So mm-hmm. it's completely out of the hands of whether or not Schweitzer still believes that there was an issue or Hamish Marshall still believes that there's an issue. Right? That no longer matters because uh, because the the number of victims in this matter and of the criminal code, it is section 403.1, I believe, um, or 401.3. It's one of the two. Because one of them is something, uh, one of them is something that refers to something really ancient, but uh, in those, it's it's called personation and it's taking the right that someone else had to make a vote, again whether they knew they were signed up or not, uh, 
also, you know, fun stuff. This is really scandalous all the way around. But the fact that, yeah, that there could be political interference. I mean, yeah, I just, the pretzelization between saying this might be okay and that's not, looking at the liberals. Um, you know, Rachel Notley's doing a fantastic job. I actually quite, I have really enjoyed watching her as the opposition. Yeah, I think it's been fantastic. Yeah, she's going to be amazing in question period for the next couple of years until she goes to lead the federal NDP after Jagmeet Singh loses. <laughs> are you are you crossing your are you crossing your fingers on that one? I mean, sort of I am too. I think we have talked about this before. I don't want to see her leave and I don't know that she's considering it at all, but I uh, so I think she'd be foolish not to. And yeah. I would just love to see Prime Minister Rachel Notley <laughs> face off with Premier Jason Kenney. <laughs> that's the only reason I want it. Oh, you know, that's that's probably a most fantastic place to leave it. Everyone will have a smile on their face. Yeah. <laughs> No, I think this has been this has been great, and we are obviously going to have to run a second podcast weekly to talk about federal politics because uh, provincial politics is not going to slow down. I don't think yeah. anywhere in the near future. No, it's going to be busy, and there's a quite aggressive legislative agenda, and so I think we're going to have a lot of content. But yeah, there's a lot of stuff happening federally as well, and it's going to get really interesting soon. Yeah, it's so already really interesting. It, it yeah. is, it is, but you know, we're we're trying to keep it under an hour. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, well, let's chat soon. Let's do another podcast this week and let's talk federal. Okay. Awesome. Sounds good. Okay. Thanks. Bye, Robbie. Bye, Deirdre. Thanks for joining us for this episode. This has been the Political R and D podcast with Robbie Krieger Smith and Deirdre Mitchell McLean. Where can people find you, Deirdre? They can find me on Twitter at Mitchell underscore AB. And you can find me online at RKS Alberta. The Political R&D Podcast is available wherever you get your podcast, And you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Political R&D. Mm-hmm.